Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number 14. So we're going to continue with The Art of War by Sun Tzu. So I'm covering this book because I want to explain how we can use military tactics in our everyday lives and use it to our advantage. The greatest military book ever written on strategy and tactics is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. It was written about 2,500 years ago, and it is still relevant today. So we are going to continue with chapter two, and this one is titled Waging War. All right. So before we get into this, I want everybody who's watching this to hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, and share it. All right. So we're going to continue with the script. This is chapter two, Waging War. So Sun Tzu said, the operations of war, where there are in the field a thousand swift chariots, as many as heavy chariots, and a hundred thousand soldiers with provisions enough to carry them a thousand li, so that the whole army would be divided up into a thousand battalions, each consisting of two chariots and a hundred men. So one li is uh, 2.78 miles. So it says the expediture at home and on the front, including entertainment of guests, small items such as glue, paint, and the sum spent on chariots and armor will reach a total of a thousand ounces of silver per day, such as the cost of raising an army of 100,000 men. When you engage in actual fighting, if victory is long in coming, these men's weapons will grow dull and their door will be dampered, and if you lay siege to a town, you will exhaust your strength. Again, if the campaign is protracted, the resources of the state will not be equal to the strain. Now, when your weapons are dulled and your door dampered and your strength exhausted and your treasure spent, other chiefians will spring up and take advantage of your extremity. Then no man, however wise, will be able to avert the consequences that must ensue. Thus, though we have heard the stupid haste in war, cleverness has been Seen associated with long delay. <clears throat> okay, so let's talk about this for a second. So it says, when you engage in actual fighting and the victory is long in coming, meaning that the victory is not swift, it's going to be a prolonged war, that your men's weapons are going to grow dull and their door will be dampered. And if you lay siege to a town, you will exhaust your strength. So if your weapons are dull and your door is dampered, and your strength exhausted, and your treasure spent, other chiefians will spring up to take advantage of your extremity. So basically what Sun Tzu is saying here is that if you start to wage war, and you do not win this battle swiftly, you're going to run out of resources, your weapons are going to become dull, your men's morale are going to be down, you're going to be banged up, and... In this case, there's going to be other, as he put it, chiefians. So there'll be other people or other entities that are going to come and take advantage of you being a broken down army with resources that are low. So putting this into perspective, <clears throat> talking about it in our everyday lives, let's say you're a martial artist and you're, and you're in a fight and you come out round one, exhausting all your energy given it everything you had and by round two you're exhausted you didn't train hard enough you used up all your energy 
And now your opponent is going to seize on that opportunity and take advantage of you in a weakened state. Right? So as we read in chapter one, all warfare is based on deception. Don't telegraph what you're going to do or telegraph your next move. All right, number six, there is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged warfare. It is only one who is thoroughly acquainted with the evils of war that can thoroughly understand their profitable way of carrying it on. A skillful soldier does not rise a second levy. Neither are his supply wagons loaded more than twice. Poverty of the state causes an army to be maintained by contributions from a distance, causes the people to be impoverished. On the other hand, the proximity of an army causes prices to go up, and high prices cause the people's substance to be drained away. The homes of the people will be stripped bare, and three-tenths of their income will be dismissed. While government expenses are for broken chariots, worn-out horses, breastplates, helmets, bows, arrows, spears, shields, and heavy wagons will amount for four-tenths of this total revenue. Hence, a wise general makes a point of forging on the enemy. One cartload of the enemy's provisions is equivalent to 20 of its own. Now, in order to kill the enemy, our men must be rused to anger, that there may be advantage from defeating the enemy. They must have the rewards. Therefore, in chariot fighting, when ten or more chariots have been broken, these should be rewarded who took the first. Our own flags should be substituted for those of the enemy, and the chariots mingled and used in conjunction with ours. The captive soldiers should be kindly treated and kept. It may be known that the leader of armies is the arbiter of the people's fate, the man on whom it depends whether a nation shall be in peace or in peril. So Sun Tzu is saying that your troops need to be rewarded. They need to be angered enough to be able to defeat the enemy. And that when you get a victory of the enemy, when you break their chariots, when you take out their chariots, you take their weapons, you take their food, you take whatever you can from the beaten army and you take their chariots and you put it in amongst your ranks, right? So this does actually two things. This strengthens your own ranks, right? So whatever chariots that you had that were damaged, you take their chariots that are still working, right? Whatever weapons that you got damaged, you take their weapons. Not only does this strengthen your own army, but it also boosts the morale of your troops. And it's kind of a show of force when you're when another army sees you riding around with the army's chariots that you just defeated, that's gonna send a message to them, right? So think about how you could ex- use this tactic in your everyday life. It's kind of hard to think of examples because this is kind of, uh, in today's day and age, it's kind of uh, looked down upon to do something like that. So I can guarantee you that if the United States military started uh, flying an enemy's planes or uh, using their tanks, you would have some politician standing up there and says, this is not what we do in the United States. We do not do this. All right, so... Uh, Today is a little bit different than it was back in Sun Tzu's time, but there is a way that you could apply this in your everyday life. I'm not saying that you take from your opponent or you take from your coworkers or you take from your wife or whoever it is that you're in a battle with. I'm not saying that. 
but you could apply some of these tactics. You can strengthen yourself from the mistakes that your opponent makes, right? So watch your competitors. Watch the mistakes that they make, right? Don't do those mistakes. Watch your coworkers. Do they get to work on time or do they get to work late? If they are getting to work on time, then you need to get to work early. If the person who's coming late is already out of the picture, right? They're not even on your radar. You want to focus on the people who are getting there on time or a little bit earlier. If you want to show yourself, you have to get there before all of them, right? Uh, Who's the best producing salesperson in your company, right? What do they do? Watch them, see what they do, and then apply it to yourself, right? Take the good things from them, but watch their mistakes as well. When you see them make a mistake, then you pounce on that, right? All right. So that was chapter two. And we have chapter three. It says attack by strategium. Sun Tzu said, in the practical art of war, the best thing of all is to take the enemy's country whole and intact. To shatter and destroy, it is not good. So too, it is better to recapture an army in its entirety than to destroy it. To capture a regiment, a detachment, or a company, hence to fight and conquer it all, your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. That's a good one. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, I believe was on combat. No, actually it was in the book On Killing. I didn't cover that book. He said that the most primitive form of aggression prior to an actual act of aggression taking place is posturing. And you will see this in animals and humans do it too. It's called posturing. It's kind of like how Sun Tzu said, make your enemy believe that you were uh, bigger when you're weak, right? So posturing is, uh, so take for instance, if you were in, uh, if you were in a group when you were in high school and you guys were fighting at the football game or you're fighting somewhere and you got these two groups on two sides and one's being real loud, one's being real loud and, you know, taking off their shirts and they're ready to fight and they're in a show of force. And you got the other side that's kind of like, oh man, I don't want to know. You got, they're kind of like with their tails between the legs. You can tell who's going to win. And that's a form of posturing, right? So they're trying to make the other side back down before actually getting into an act of aggression, right? So this is what Sun Tzu is talking about when he said, when he said that you want to break the enemy's resistance without even fighting, right? So it says, thus, the highest form of generalship is to balk the enemy's plans. All right, so balk means to mess up. You want to mess up the enemy's plans, right? Break his resilience before the battle even starts, right? The next in order is to attack the enemy's army in the field. So after you've broken the enemy's resistance, you've broken their morale, you then you attack their troops in the field, right? The general, unable to control his irritation, will launch his men to the assault like swarming ants, with the result that one-third of his men are slain, while the town still remains untaken. All right, so you need to keep your cool. 
You can't become irritated. When you become irritated, then you make rash decisions that don't make sense and could possibly sink one third of your troops. You could apply that to the business world. You could apply that to anything. You could apply that to a fight. You get punched in the nose. And now you're irritated. And now you start go swinging all crazy. You're not protecting yourself. You don't have your hands up. Your opponent's going to siege on that. Start giving those jabs, hitting you, irritating you more. Make you start lose your focus. Make you start losing the fundamentals of the fight. You drop your hands. Then you're taking headshots. Right? You get all disoriented. Right? It's the same thing in the business world. You all of a sudden you start making these rash decisions. You, um, you either hire too many people or you start laying off too many people. You're trying to, uh, you're doing things that don't really make sense. Trying to make up uh, profit margins or whatever it is, and your company is all in disarray, and uh, your sales are going down. The morale in the company is going is going bad, and you just start making these decisions off the cuff with no strategic plans behind them. Um, that is, that's, you're on the road to destruction. You're going to destroy your company if you keep going down in that way. So don't make rash, swift decisions when you're irritated, when you are irritated with your personal relationships, irritated with your boss, irritated with your wife, irritated with your coworker, do not go and open up your mouth and start saying a bunch of crazy stuff just because you're in the moment and you lost your cool. Okay. Nothing good could come from that. You're probably going to get fired. You might end up divorced. You might end up with no friends if you do that. Right. So keep your emotions in check. Check your ego. Therefore, the skillful leader subdues the enemy's troops without any fighting. He captures their cities without laying siege on them. He overthrows their kingdom without lengthy operations in the field. With his forces intact, he will dispute the mastery of the empire, and thus, without losing a man, his triumph will be complete. This is the method of attacking by strategium. It is the rule in war. If our forces are ten and the enemy's one, to surround him, if five to one, to attack him. Let me read that again. It is the rule of war if our forces are 10 to the enemy's one to surround him. And if it is five to one to attack him. If twice as numerous to divide our army into two. If equally matched, we can offer battle. If slightly inferior in numbers, we can avoid the enemy. If quite unequal in every way, we can flee from him. Hence, Though an obstinate fight may be made by a small force in the end and may be captured by a larger force. Now the general is the bulk work of the state. If the bulk work of the state at all points, the state will be strong. If the bulk work is defective, the state will be weak. There are three ways in which a ruler can bring misfortune upon his army. By commanding the army to advance to a retreat, being ignorant of the fact that it cannot obey, this is called hobbling the army. All right, so let's talk about what Sun Tzu said here about uh, basically about leadership, right? 
So it says you want to defeat the army without even going to battle, right? So Jocko put up the other day an excerpt from one of his books, and it was um, the difference between leadership and manipulation. So leadership and manipulation are closely related, and they actually have the same objective. They are, you want to get people to do a certain thing, right? You want to lead them a certain way to a certain objective, or you want to manipulate them to a certain objective, right? So they both have the same end game outcome, but what's the difference? Leadership, you get people to do what you want them to do without them even knowing. And a good leader would even make his subordinates or his troops think that it's their idea. Let me say that again. A good leader will get his troops or his employees or his wife or her husband to do what they want them to do without them even knowing. And an even better leader will make them believe that it was their idea to do it. When you manipulate people, you want them to do things that benefit you, not for the sake of the team, right? So if you manipulate people, you want them to do something for you, not that it's going to better them or the company or the team, right? Or the family. It is to benefit you, the manipulator. People don't like being manipulated, okay? But when you're a part of a company, you're part of an organization, part of some type of team, part of family, and you are in a leadership role or you take on the role of a leader, anytime that a leader is going to make changes, he's going to get resistance. So it's better to take an indirect approach and make the people that you're leading come up with the idea as you guide them to the idea that you want them to have and and they make end up making the decisions and end up making the plan that you wanted them to make in the first place. So it's not you imposing your will on them. It is actually them coming up with a plan that executes the plan and the objective that is going to benefit the company, the family, the team, whatever it is in a positive way, right? That's the difference between manipulation and leadership. By attempting to govern an army in the same way as he administers a kingdom, being ignorant of the conditions which obtain in the army, this causes restlessness in the soldiers' minds. By employing the officers of his army without discrimination, though ignorance of the military principle of adaptation to circumstances, this shakes the confidence of the soldiers. But when the army is restless and distrustful, trouble is sure to come from the other feudal princes. This is simply bringing anarchy into the army and flinging victory away. Thus, we may know that there are five essentials for victory. Number one, he will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. Perfect. Number two, 
He will win who knows how to handle both superior and inferior forces. Genius. Number three, he will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout all its ranks. Perfect. He will win who prepared himself, waits to take the enemy unprepared. And he will win who has military capacity and is not interfered with by the sovereign. Keeping the sovereigns out. Hence the saying, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Yeah, all right. So we are going to stop there. Know yourself, know your enemy. If you know yourself and you know your enemy, you will most likely succeed in whatever battle it is that you're fighting. But if you know yourself, but you don't know the enemy, even if you do gain a win over the enemy, you're still suffering a defeat in some way. There's some type of tactical disadvantage that you're giving yourself by not stunning your enemy. And the chances of you actually winning some type of advantage or battle over your enemy by not knowing them are pretty slim. And if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you are most likely going to fail in whatever it is that you're trying to do. So you need to know yourself. You need to know your capabilities. Know your need to know your strengths. Know your weaknesses. Right? If you know your strengths and you know your weaknesses, then you know where you need to get better at. Knowing yourself, knowing your weaknesses, know what your weaknesses are. Attack them. Train them. Get better at them. Right? Know where your enemy is going to attack you. Right? So you we already know that the enemy is going to want to attack your weakness. So if you don't know what your weaknesses are. You're going any attack that the enemy applies to you is going to become unexpected because you don't even know what your weaknesses are. But if you know what your weaknesses are, then when the enemy tries to attack you, you know where that enemy is going to be attacking you. It's going to be attacking you and your weaknesses. You already know that. You're already prepared for that, right? Knowing your enemy as well, knowing yourself, knowing your enemy strengths and weaknesses so that. You know what your enemy is good at. You're not going to attack them there. You know what they're weak at. That's where you're going to go and attack them at. Now, there's most likely that your enemy is also studying, is also, listen, at the time of Sun Tzu wrote this, this book was being circulated around all of the different kingdoms in China. All the great military leaders were reading it. They all knew it. They all had a copy. They all knew it. So then it wasn't some type of secret that this just comes up. This book is just written and it's like, oh, this is like amazing. And only a couple people used it and won battles. No, this was widely given out. This was copied and it was widely distributed in China. So all the great military leaders were applying these tactics. So then how do you win? By doing it better. That's how you win, by doing it better. By doing it better than your opponent. Training harder, being more prepared. When your enemy is resting, then you're training. That's how you get better. That's how you improve. That is how 
you train to win. We're going to leave it there. This is Flip the Script Podcast, transmission number 14 out.